Welcome to a Citations Needed News Brief. I am Nima Shirazi. I'm Adam Johnson. We do these news briefs in between our regularly scheduled episodes when, uh, oh, I don't know, we need to talk about the larger Dick Wolfiverse and the endless propaganda that not only have we seen for decades, but has reached maybe a new fever pitch. Before we get to that, of course, I should mention that you can always follow the show on Twitter at CitationsPod, while Twitter still exists, and Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of the show through Patreon.com slash Citations Needed Podcast. All your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener-funded. And today, Adam, we want to talk specifically about a recent episode of the rebooted Law & Order Police Procedural, Police Law Procedural, uh, the kind of set the stage initially started airing in 1990. Now it is back. Sam Waterston is back. And we have with us to talk about this recent episode, episode six of Law and Order season 22. It's called Vicious Cycle. And oh my God, is it a doozy? And we are joined by our guest today, Jawan J. Holmes, Brooklyn-born journalist and writer specializing in digital media culture and art criticism. You can follow Jawan on Twitter, while it still exists, at <laughs> Jawan the Writer. Jawan, thank you so much for joining us today on Citations Needed. Hello, Adam, Nima. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited. As I'll get into, I'm very much into the Law & Order universe, but as we'll talk about it, I'm definitely taking a turn that even I can't Even understand. with the low bar <laughs> that has been set for decades. Yeah, for those who don't know, Law & Order, the original which is the only one I ever watched. I never watched SVU because there was too many, it was too grotesque. You know, it was constantly talking about, there's lines where she's talking about, you know, uh, and you you sodomized him with a banana. And then I was like, you know what? I think I'm done here. (laughs) (laughs) And Law and Order, the original though, which I watched, it was on from 1990 to 2010. Went off the air for 11 years, then came back in 2021. There was that brief time during the George Floyd protest where some networks were trying to sort of do some racial inventory about whether or not they were just doing propaganda. Then... Everybody forgot about that. Then they brought it back. <laughs> Thank God that blew over. That lasted about 10 minutes. <laughs> then they brought it back. And now it's in a sort of current iteration. And the reason why we're talking about this today is that obviously we've talked about Law & Order on the show a few times over the last five years. John Oliver did a whole segment two months ago. Color of Change has done a few reports on Law and & Order. And those who don't know, Dick Wolf, the creator has said quite explicitly in several interviews, it's a pro-cop, pro-prosecutor show. He thought that for decades during the 60s and 50s and 60s and 70s, that prosecutors had gotten a bad rap and that the DAs had gotten a bad rap and that public defenders like Matlock and Perry Mason had sort of given the public a false perception of police, which is obviously absurd, but that was kind of his argument. And so he created Law and Order to basically just be propaganda. I mean, that's sort of what it is. It's a propaganda corrective to... It's not even crypto. It's sort of explicitly pro. Yeah. But then there was an episode that aired four days before the midterms that even from its own standards was basically just a police union commercial. It was... Even again, even by the normal standards of law and order, was incredibly didactic, very on the nose, overtly political, effectively lobbying people to vote against bail reform to the extent to which we thought it kind of deserved a news brief. It's basically just like Heather McDonald City Journal talking points. Yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. And we'll get into the details, but I want to kind of start off by talking about this episode is full of just blatant lies about bail reform. Again, it's almost as if it was written by the stupidest person at the NYPD fraternal, the FOP, the police union. Like, I mean, it's just not even, there's no mystery. There's no twist. There's not even a red herring. It's just serial repeat offender, 
106 times he's been arrested. Career criminal, yeah. quote unquote, career criminal. Um, that is repeated about 17 times during the episode. Yeah, all the Tucker Carlson tropes, you know, catch and release, blah, blah, blah. Murders this guy who stands up to him and is part of a robbery of a pharmacy. So we even get the kind of Walgreens stuff in there. I want to start off, if you could, by talking about the ways in which this episode completely lies about bail reform. We can, we can get into the details later, but kind of broadly how it lies about bail reform. And situated into the kind of broader politics of law and order as a kind of meaningful escalation where it's not even kind of vaguely disguised. It's just like a FOP press release. Yeah. You gave a good introduction about the show. Like, I think that hits it on the nose. Started in the 90s, ran for 20 years, Dick Wolf, openly propaganda. And the one important piece of context I'll give first about myself and the show is that I grew up watching Law & Order, so I from I can't even remember the first time I watched an episode, but I can remember from the age of nine being very much into the show. The Law & Order, Law & Order SVU, at the time when Criminal Tent was running. I've always been a fan of the show, and just, you know, from an entertainment standpoint, it has been a very successful show. But the main ingredient that the original has, and that the others, like, they stray away from, but they keep, is this ripped-from-the-headlines formula of course the formula of half police procedural half courtroom uh, drama right yeah courtroom procedural yeah so like the ripped from the headlines part has always been a component of how dick wolf and the other writers and producers and every other show have approached it they're always very explicitly going after a recent story and you know of course at the time when it started there was a lot of shows that didn't put police or prosecutors in a positive light, but there wasn't a larger operation at the time in the public, in the media landscape that was anti-police and anti-prosecutor. So at the time when the show started and throughout most of its original run, there wasn't a lot of anti-police or anti-prosecutorial sentiment. The movement wasn't strong. It was kind of just like in, in a void. Yeah, well, yeah, it didn't have a place in the larger media. Like, you didn't open the newspaper or even turn on TV anywhere and see, like, people explaining why or criticizing the police for more than two minutes. Mm-hmm. So so you're saying it, it filled a void that wasn't there. <laughs> exactly. It was pro-police in a world that was already not anti-police. And it had the space to become successful like other as other police procedurals would go on to do like the csi shows on and on and on it had the space to do that because the larger media landscape at the time did not challenge that or had no interest in challenging that or listening to voices that challenged that they were there you know and they refer to it a lot of the early show but there wasn't a large you know post rodney king even in the 2000s post 9 11 pre-Trayvon Martin, there's always been voices speaking about the bad things police right. are even- But it wasn't mainstream. Exactly. Because if you watch the show in the 90s and 2000s, they'll have like, out of the 22, 24 episodes a season, they'll have like one token episode about yeah. police misconduct or police abuse, or they got they sort of prosecute the wrong person. Yeah. They, they sort of do that to like get the ACLU off their back and black civil rights groups <laughs> off their back. It's like- right. But this episode is like a vendetta. Yeah. yeah this episode, it seems fully- blown reactionary in a way that's like a big fuck you to the George Floyd reforms. So I want to talk about that horrible didactic writing. This was like sitting at a Italian sub shop in Patterson, New Jersey and kind of listening to everyone. I mean, it's just a list of right wing grievances about criminals. Yeah. I want to play a clip here uh, from this is this is where the uh, the two cops are interrogating their first witness, who is a um, 
a potential business partner of the murder victim, and she gives this totally unsolicited tangent about crime one would see on Jesse Waters or Tucker Carlson. Let's listen to that right now. I feel like he's the reason my business failed. All the construction, the noise, the dust. It's hard enough to keep a small business going these days, especially in this neighborhood. People just steal stuff. And we're supposed to just stand there and do nothing, pretend they're actually not committing a crime. That must have been really frustrating. Yeah, it's a joke. And you people just sit back and watch. Uh, no, we make the arrests, and then the judges, politicians, and DAs, they, uh, they don't want to incarcerate anyone anymore. All right. So, um, and then we're going yeah. to listen, listen to one more clip and then we're going to respond. So this is a clip. So this is a clip from when our cops bust this uh, redheaded 29 year old. In law and order world, it's always important they don't actually arrest black people for the most part because that would be too real. So, they're always prosecuting doctors in the Upper West Side for murder. So, it has that kind of New York Post uh, politics of, oh, cops are actually just evenly distributing justice. Of course, we know that's not true. And so this guy's some sort of professional Dwayne Reed robber. Again, they've taken the Walgreens shoplifting thing to the extreme here. And I guess the guy, one of the professional Dwayne Reed robbers who's part of this pharmacy theft where they steal toothpaste and razor blades. By the way, that's not really how it works. It's actually usually like basically homeless people who steal for food and for substance abuse issues, but that's neither here nor there. He like clearly just got out of Juilliard (laughs) and was handed the script about five minutes before they started filming and he's supposed to convince us that he commits crime because they, no one prosecutes crime anymore. So let's listen to that clip. That's out of line. Why is that? Because I ain't doing anything illegal. Oh, I hate to break it to you, pal, but stealing, it's still illegal. Even though there is no bail, doesn't mean it's not a crime. I, I don't know about all that, but I do know I can walk into any store I want, fill my bags up with whatever I want, and every employee in the damn place will just look the other way. Last month, the manager opened the door for me because my hands was too full from all the stuff I was taking. It's a true story. True story, dude. True story. Let me just note that this episode was written by Rick Eade and Pamela J. Weschler. And Eade is a writer and producer for tons of cop shows in the Dick wolf from Law and Order to FBI, Chicago PD, CSI, these other shows, Dark Blue and Conviction. He was a showrunner on Chicago PD. And the co-writer, Weschler, spent apparently over 15 years working herself as a criminal prosecutor at the local, state, and federal levels. She was an assistant DA and assistant attorney general in Boston. She was a trial attorney for the DOJ. And then she moved to L.A., worked as a legal consultant, and now writes for network TV shows, including Doubt, Bull, Conviction, and, of course, the full panoply of law and order shows from criminal intent to trial by jury to now this new reboot of law and order. So these are network TV cop writer old hands, one of which shockingly was herself a prosecutor. Yeah, they're veterans. So I can to start out, give like the background and synopsis of this episode and how we got here for people that might not watch law and order. or haven't watched it at least, you know, in a while you're hearing the voice, the deep voice of Jeffrey Donovan, who is Frank Crosgrove, I believe is a detective name. I'll say that I know Jeffrey Donovan from Burn Notice. And, you know, he wasn't exactly like showing off his acting chops in either role, but it's sort of as if this role, which he started in the reboot, he was not in the original run of the show. He came back in season 21 to be partners with Anthony Anderson's character and Anthony Anderson left after the 21st season. It's, It's like somebody took his character in burn notice 
and decided to give him a desk job as an NYPD detective. And now he's just angry and disgruntled all the time because his entire role is supposed to be the stereotypical conservative hothead cop. Through all the SVU criminal intent, that is the... And of course, they do, in at least in most of the time, they've done a good job of developing those characters. But whether it's Mike Logan, who was Chris Noff in the original, to Elliot Stabler in SVU, to even criminal intent detectives and other detectives I can name, Ray Curtis, played by Benjamin Bratt, like they all have this same trope. So the tropes are there. The tropes are still consistent, which is why, you know, you name the veteran writers who <laughs> ran these shows and wrote these shows from those times. They have kept those same tropes. Mm-hmm. You can sense they're trying to make it more modern and more direct, but it's starting to just veer from reality. And as we hear him talking about bail doesn't exist, this whole episode The one thing I will say is that the rip from the headlines thing has gotten harder because the news cycle we live in now is much different from when its show started or originally ran. It's hard to keep up with a news cycle on the internet and versus before when, you know, you just read the times and whatever the times was focused on for a month was what you could do a TV episode on. Now it's a lot more of a mixed bag. And as we see from both right wing and mainstream centrist publications, There's this obsessive focus on bail reform that New York State passed in, I believe, 2020 or 2021. And this completely exaggerated, if not manufactured, story that the reforms made it that it's impossible to implement bail in almost any criminal case. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because we talked about the New York bail reform at the time when it first came into being in January of 2020. That coincided with, of course, the pandemic and subsequent increase in murders. Whether or not crime in general increases, debatable. So there's much dispute about that. And then the bill was immediately watered down. The bail reform in New York was watered down quite a bit later in 2020. And the idea, as the show keeps saying, is that they don't, again, he says, they don't put people away anymore. 17 people this year at Rikers have died already. The pretrial detention population of New York is up 5% from 2021 and 2022. It's difficult to say because the pandemic really mixed things up. But compared to 2019, the pretrial detention population of New York is only down a very small amount, I think something like two or three percent. So the idea that somehow they don't put people in jail anymore is, of course, Mm -hmm. just not true. But they keep repeating it in this episode over and over again. And I did think it was quite curious that this episode came out. Again, I don't want to sound like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist here, but I, I don't think it's a coincidence it came out four days before the midterm elections. Yeah. Because it is so overtly a political... It feels like it was written quickly in order to do so, honestly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like they couldn't have seen it coming. But yes, it does seem very... Because the thing about it is, and you, and you touched on this, it's extremely boring. It is <laughs> shocking how badly made it is compared to previous Law & Orders, which always had some mystery. You know, again, they weren't... It wasn't Dostoevsky, but it was... There was some mystery. There was a couple good character moments. There was a twist. The plots had a twist. There was some... Exactly. There was some sort of movement in the story the actors feel like they're reading off of cue cards it seems very (laughs) rushed it seems bad it almost like that it seems again even compared to others overtly political didactic propaganda yeah it's all stereotypes and that goes to the point where i was saying that you know the news cycle before when the law and order or even earlier you know law and order as view other shows they had time to take a story idea so even in 2012, like season 13 of SVU, they did uh, the 
Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the hotelier, or of course they changed the details, but they had time to focus on that idea of this guy who, rich, wealthy, worldly guy who came to New York and raped or sexually assaulted a hotel worker. Yeah. They had the time, and because the how the news cycle even worked back then, even with the internet, there was still enough focus and still enough head time that they could write a decent story about that idea, just as an example, right? And of course, that's how it worked before then too. But see, now true crime is still taking a lot of mainstream media's attention, but it's not as singular or straightforward as it was even back then and even 10 years ago or five years ago. Now there's a lot of coverage, there's moving hands. And this is what we get to where the present Law & Order episodes are written, not as if they're following or going along with a well-established public event, but they're just taking these ideas and after a while they just become stereotypes of an idea. And even though this episode, as you mentioned, is out there and it seems like out of nowhere, a lot of their episodes since they restarted this year in season 21 and 2022 have just been taking these ideas that are popular. Oh, bail reform. Oh, anti-police sentiment. Oh, um, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, they've touched on it prior. That's true. This just seemed to be like very in your face. Yeah. So this episode is definitely focused on that. I mean, and that goes to something else you touched on in that something that the other episodes had, they had nuance, of course, but they also had a lot more, you know, I don't want to assume that it's just out of like the nature of how network television has changed, but they put a lot of meat into plots during the original run of these shows or the first 10, 15 years of these shows. In this episode, for example, it starts with the eventual victim. I think he's at a fashion event. He's Mm -hmm. a fashion designer presenting something. Yeah, it's his flagship store's launch party. Yeah. And the first thing he does is pretty much give this speech about crime. And then he ends up dead. So, of course, I guess that's supposed to be (laughs) irony. But if you knew anything about the initial show, you would not expect the theme of each part of the episode to be consistent. (laughs) To be so obvious. Yeah, to be consistent. There would be twists. There would be something to the mystery factor, but also just keep the viewer interested be like you don't get you know it's just like a reading a book right you don't preview the full story in the first five minutes of a (laughs) book yeah literally like the whole thesis was in the cold open of this show it's all right there so juan as a longtime viewer and real i mean fan of law and order which is why you know i i love talking to you about this because you know it's i get to be like eh, law and order like i remember when it started i never really watched i whatever now i you know i watched this recent episode and i'm like holy shit but you know i've seen stuff over the years and it, it always kind of you know comports with the way that i think about law and order and dick wolf but you as like a fan who's seen so much more than i have certainly of these like where do you, as not only a fan, but also a you know media critic, like see where there's this mirroring of the kind of true life, you know, ripped from the headlines, as you're saying, but that really is about perception, right, of what we're told about crime and using that to tell these stories to just sort of more deeply, I guess, embed the propaganda rather than having it reflect, you know, you as someone from the city, right? Like born, raised in Brooklyn. Like, what do you see when you're watching Law and Order? Do you see your own city in that? Or are you able to be like, these are stories that don't actually reflect 
life there and yet you still find there like is it only entertainment value or do you think that it's doing something a bit deeper that is mirroring people's perceptions and maybe entrenching them more in a way that is then serving the kind of dick wolf version of this world so i wasn't alive when the show first started so i'll say that but when Dick will first put the pilot together. <laughs> you weren't alive yet? God, I'm old. I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I gave myself away by saying that. But as I've read, when Dick will first put the original pilot together in 1988, he was really infatuated with the show he saw when he was younger from 1963 called Arrest and Trial. It was a one-season show. And now in this show, it is sort of a funny dynamic here that's different, obviously. But in Arrest and Trial, what the show is about a police officer would find a criminal and arrest him. And then in the second half of the show, a defense attorney would represent the person that was arrested. And from how I understand it, every episode of that show got the suspect, the defendant off. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. So it's this 1963 show called Arrest and Trial. With Ben Gazzara, no less. Yes, exactly. And so that's how he became infatuated with this idea of both a half and half law and crime show but also when he did the original pilot he got george dunza he got him attached george dunza wanted to do the show out in los angeles even though the idea of the show was supposed to be based in new york he wanted it to be in los angeles he felt it would be easier to film there on a set rather than on the ground in new york city dick wolf obviously overruled him and then he did the first season of the show but he ultimately left because George Zunza, he wanted to stay in Los Angeles. So I say that because from its inception, one of the key components that made the show so unique and different from any other police procedural is how New York it is, just to put it in simple terms. Being in New York and being realistic in some way to New York is a big way of how Law & Order works. That's why, you know, they tried the spinoff of Law & Order Los Angeles. And it, I mean, there was other reasons, but it just didn't catch on because it wasn't Law & Order to a lot of people because Law & Order means New York. Yeah. Law & Order is steam coming out of the streets and hot dogs. Yeah. Chat next to the hot dog stand and Wall Street. I mean, it is a character in the show itself. And that, of course, lends it verisimilitude, to use a grad school term. It lends the show credibility when it comes to sort of realism, because it's supposed to be seen as like, oh, these are things cops are really concerned with. Again, they get all the jargon right, all this sort of legal mumbo jumbo. Yes, no, you put it perfectly that New York is a character in the show. And obviously they stayed in New York. It was key to Dick Wolf and other people to keep filming the show in New York on the streets, not in a studio or, you know, like on a stage somewhere. That was a key component. And that's like, as someone that, you know, obviously I grew up watching the show, but even I grew up, where you could find out where Law & Order was filming and go and watch them, you know, or even be in the background of a Law & Order episode, right? And I mean, just down to even the introduction of the show, I mean, the iconic music, yes, but the main thing they're showing you in that introduction is different ways to see New York. And so, yeah, New York is a character, and I would say what's supposed to be the one constant character in the show more than any of the actual characters. <laughs> more than Sam Waterston. <laughs> well, yeah, originally, you know, like Sam Waterston wasn't the original cast member. More and, than Jerry Orbach. Yeah. Yeah, like to capsulize it, when the show first did start running, it wasn't universally popular because the characters weren't interesting to most people. And that's when they had to develop Jack McCoy's, Lenny Briscoe's, 
Ray Curtis's the heart of the show. Yeah, because just the nature of television, for better or for worse, people need to see characters that they relate to or can parasocially project on even. Yeah, the most realistic part of the show is every time Benjamin Bratt interviews a female witness, they remark about how hot he is. Because <laughs> he, he is objectively gorgeous. And they have to acknowledge it because they're like, okay, like I've seen a lot of cops and none of them look like you. And I'm like, yeah, that's that would happen. Yeah, I mean, my favorite part about that is just how his entire run of the show is him. And this is just to give an example of how in-depth, even though the focus of the, each episode is not on the characters for the large part, right? So Granted, by that nature, they don't put in as much development as other shows. But even during Ray Curtis, Benjamin Bratt playing that character in the late 90s, in his three or four season run, he is married, his wife develops MS, his wife gets sick, he has to start taking care of her, but he's also trying to balance working his job and then balance all these hot women hitting on him like Julia Roberts in one episode. (laughs) Even in one episode, they do go to Los Angeles, and at one point, him and his wife even though he's Catholic, and even though his wife is battling a mess, at one point his wife leaves him. Then he goes to Los Angeles and basically almost has something close to an affair. This is still TV in the 90s, so they didn't have sex on screen, but he does have this relationship with a film producer, all these different women that are constantly hitting on him, which is funny because the reason his character left was because he went to go take a private job in LA to take care of his wife. Because the job would be easier to do while he could also take care of his wife. And Moonlight at Chippendales, right? (laughs) Most likely, yeah. So, you know, like, there was that much development in his run in the show, even as a stereotypical Catholic hothead cop. They were still, like, telling at least moderately character-driven stories. Yeah. So, actually, one thing I really want to talk about a little bit is this idea that, you know, yes, there's the kind of straightforward right-wing talking point part of especially this episode but i think you know i think a lot of law and order episodes but i think there's something interesting that they also try and do which is inject like quote unquote the other side's arguments in order to then like either debunk them or say like this is why they're wrong so last year there was an episode of one of the spinoffs law and order organized crime where there was a plot line where there was a New York governor's race and the liberal candidate, Terry Garcia, played by the great Elliot Villar, is pro-Black Lives Matter protests and pro-defund and all this stuff. He calls out an Albanian gangster by name during a press conference. The gangster then puts out a hit on the candidate. And of course, in true TV fashion, he doesn't get killed, but his innocent wife gets killed by the hitman. And there's like the crane shot from above of Garcia being like, no, with like his wife dying in his arms. Okay, so there's that episode. But then they follow that up where Garcia then wins the race, right, becomes governor and is all of a sudden because he has now been a victim of crime in an egregious fashion, is now super-duper pro-cop and has completely gotten over all of that defund stuff. And in much the same way, there's this scene in the episode we've been talking about, Vicious Cycle, where the kind of like moderate black cop partner, right? Jalen Shaw. Jalen Shaw, thank you, is talking about bail and is talking about people, you know, rotting in Rikers. But then this is what happens. They kind of They move through the liberal talking point in order to get to what they're really going after. Uh, Let's listen to that clip. 
107 arrests, zero consequences. Unbelievable. Yeah. We're frustrated too, trust me. But let's face it, it's not like this just happened for no reason. I agree. It wasn't too long ago we were locking up people for not being able to scrape together 100 bucks worth of bail. It was sitting in Rikers for months, some years, while the dumbass misdemeanor cases would just drag on and on. That may be true, but I'm not sure the cure is any better than the disease. I hear you, Frank. We overcorrected. It's driving people crazy. They're starting to take matters into their own hands. Like Perry Sutton. Mm-hmm. I love this scene because it's so... It's like, you're this liberal who felt a little guilty during the George Floyd protest or during the Mike Brown protest, and we're sort of directly marketing to you on the eve of the midterm, and you're a little squeamish about it. But this whole bail reform thing, total overcorrection. Now, what the... Again... Riker's population is basically unchanged. It's squalor hellholes being sued by about 75 different civil rights organizations. Nothing's really changed. Like the fundamental basics are actually very unchanged. The arrest rates are not really much different. But they have to create this idea that like, oh, we just went to the very far left and we need to come back to the center. Now, of course, they don't ever say what that is because the thing we have and the reform reforms they did in 2021 were supposed to be that center. But they have to live in this fictional universe where like the far left communists have taken over New York and have made crime legal. They crime is legal. <laughs> there is no such thing as bail. It's the purge. And of course, it doesn't matter that none of this is true. It's because their realism is just asking random racist cops what they feel about this. It's all vibes. It's like, it feels like people are, you know, it feels like crime is up. It feels like people are taking, and that's just not, again, the data doesn't bear this out. The reality of how many people are in pretrial detention doesn't bear this out. But the sort of fundamental perverse thing about this episode is this Willie Horton logic that, the real crime and the central crime committed is that the cops didn't manage to arrest the guy before he murdered someone. So this is the key police talking point about bail, which is basically like, by the way, this happens in all the bail reform demagoguery, where they give the distinct impression to the viewer that when people are, quote, out on bail, they're not still going to be convicted and sent to prison for several years. That it means they're done. It means they don't ever- when Most people hear like, oh, you're out of you're out of jail. They think, oh, you're free forever. You were let go, right. They don't understand this is pre-trial detention that's changed, not actual prison, which has actually gotten more people are now in prison in the state of New York has actually gone up in the last few years. But that part's, of course, ignored. And we're given this narrative that the real sin is that we don't put people in jail for petty crimes because then they can't go on and commit other crimes. The idea being is that we need to basically have a pre-crime system. And so this very last scene, the DA, the guy who killed the fashion designer at the beginning, he was arrested 106 times and the one of the district attorneys had him in custody for a robbery but failed to note that he had a gun. And so this is her basically saying, I should have locked him up for the robbery and therefore he wouldn't have gone on to kill. Thank you. For what? Winning the trial. If it weren't for you, Castillo would have walked out of here a free man, yet again. If it weren't for me, Perry Sutton would still be alive. And now any first year philosophy student will tell you that this is a bit of a moral hazard, <laughs> that if the crime is not locking people up, then theoretically, we should just take every male between the ages of 18 and 24 and put them in jail preemptively, which by the way, some social psychologists have actually suggested we do that because then there would be no crime or there would be 95%. I mean, this is really ridiculous stuff. And, and that's basically the sort of central argument of bail reform. And that's why they ended on that note. It's why they weaved it into the plot and to the extent to which the plot had anything remotely clever 
or unanticipated to it, it was the idea that the main prosecutor had sort of screwed up by not arresting enough people. Because, of course, the ultimate sin in law and order is not arresting people, right? Let me touch on that real quick, because I love that you focus on that, too, because in this current season, it's a trope of a young woman being an assistant to the executive ADA and helping prosecute cases and other things. This trope that that exists, but mainly this trope that, you know, this in this case, Odelia Halevi is playing this young woman, Samantha Maroon. I, I don't know exactly what her heritage is supposed to be in the show off the top of my head, but I'm believing she's supposed to be a woman of color. And, you know, all that to say, that's a common trope in the show that there's this young, inexperienced woman ADA. And this happens in some other plots throughout the shows that she makes a mistake or something happens and it wasn't done perfectly. Now they have to correct her mistake. And that was at least a plot point they tried to get into in this episode where, well, not only are bail reforms not working, but the ADA that we follow every episode is one of the prosecutors that failed to do anything to stop this. Because there's so much crime. One of the characters says there's so- So overworked, so much crime. Yeah, she says there's so much crime that you see your caseload's so, which is so hilarious because they're in Midtown, like Upper West Side, Manhattan, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> She's not working for legal aid. She's on the other side. I'm sure she's fine. Yeah. First, I will talk about what's a bit different from just past iterations in that when this happened with Jack McCoy and one of his- 2011,000 assistant women DAs he had. <laughs> but whenever this would happen in other episodes, there would be, of course, it'll be a bit more different or complex, but there would be a point where they would show you what the character is going through. Like they're dealing with their mistakes, they're going through the emotional lapses, they're struggling to deal with their failures, what they view as their failures, and they're trying to make up for it. And then their boss or their coworker comes and tries to tell them, you know, you did what you could. We all make mistakes. Let's get them and try to make it, you know, because from the perspective of the show, generally, they're the good guys. Good guys make mistakes, but they win in the end. And that's typically how these type of episodes are supposed to go. But as we see in this episode, as we're talking about, they don't even really do that well to the how they've done it before because... Instead of them trying to still paint this ADA as a good person who just made a mistake, and they do say that to an extent, that that is what happened, but instead they present her, she ends up having to testify before the defense, and they end up presenting it as if she's made a mistake so bad. In that clip that you played, that's how the episode ends. And there's no moral, you know, there's no coworker or other person trying to console her or tell her it's okay after that. They just let her live with the guilt. And that's the last thing that they leave with the viewer. And that's just a perfect example of what I'm talking about. And that that's just not how, because the impression that leaves with the viewer is that this character has failed you and this character represents other people that has failed you. Right. It represents the pro-bail reform politicians, that they're responsible for any subsequent murder exactly. from people who aren't locked up. And that goes to the cop's point that, oh, it's not our fault, it's the prosecutor's fault. And they don't do anything. And one thing that they have done in other episodes and other shows that, you know, of course they still, like Dick Wolf has said, become pro-cop, pro-prosecutor. But one thing they always try to do is at least present this notion that they're equally evaluating both sides and there's just none of that left anymore it's 
straight victim blaming and just pushing New York Post points. <laughs> yeah. And to answer the question you posed earlier more directly about if this represents the New York that I knew as a lifelong New Yorker, I grew up in East New York, which had had one of the highest crime rates in all of New York City, if not the country for years. So a lot of the depictions of crime, on, there's now a show called East New York about police officers in East, East New York right now on CBS. Oh yeah, that, that, and they're trying to be, yeah. Apparently that show is, has its own genre of propaganda, which we'll get into. We'll do that for another episode. Yeah, but you know, most of the depictions of the wild and the hood and the dangerous parts of New York, they're trying to make my neighborhood and the place I grew up in, the people I grew up around, they're trying to paint that is if that's the entire city, which one, it's not even just that neighborhood. And that doesn't really accurately describe my neighborhood. And I will say, I don't know exact numbers, but I know in East New York recently, there have been strings of months, if not years, without murders in that district. And not even because of police strictly, even if people want to give them credit, whatever, but because of community interventions and community groups. And so that's why even before when they did this pro-copaganda perspective of what New York City looks like, there was still a lot of nuance and they always tried to differentiate that from Midtown Manhattan or even, you know, like most of where most of the city they depict is at. And granted, this has been soft launched already by all the papers. The thing about bail reform and even the criticism of bail reform that was soft launched by the New York Post and now a Fox News property. Um, but it was soft launched by them and it was picked up by all these other papers, the daily, all the other New York papers, all the worldwide media that films from New York picked up on this idea. And obviously, since then, it's tampered down a bit since they tried to do some reforms. But now we have a mayor in Eric Adams and other people who are constantly making it seem like what people made it seem like in the late 80s and 90s, whereas if you literally can't leave your house without facing a shoplifter or a gun or a, a person out on drugs, or it, it's really, it stopped becoming about, oh, it's just these parts of the neighborhoods. Because before it was more racially coded. It was more about, oh, well, this is just, look at Harlem, look at Brownsville, Brooklyn, look at these areas that are predominantly Black. Look at the crime they have. But now it's it's just completely been expanded to where no part of any major city is safe to live in <laughs> or safe to even walk in or visit or exist in. Crime's just out of control. Oh, they, yeah. And like 10 times in this episode, they're like, you know, with crime the way it is and crime and crime yeah. and crime. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. all right, we get it. We get it. <laughs> yeah. And there's just no, just from a media critic standpoint, there's just no originality no nuance to it because one it's largely made up they're trying to fit a narrative that isn't realistic they're trying to fit this narrative more specifically that the new york post and fox news and even to a lesser extent cnn and local news and the daily post and the times promote they're trying to paint it from a narrative in these papers and tv channels that they themselves cannot accurately paint because they're not, it's largely not real. There's crime everywhere. And yes, there has been crime in New York, but even with the bail reform and even with the election of a former police officer and advocate anti-crime mayor in Eric Adams, here we are in November, 2022, still going along with this narrative that 
crime is so uncontrollable because of terrible DAs and terrible laws and the left and the phones and well, and there's this whole trajectory, right, of like shoplifting equals eventual murder. It's this whole kind of you know career criminality. When, yeah, I mean, as you said, Juwan, like, New York is actually, I think, one of the, if not the safest big city, but you wouldn't know it from Law and Order. But here, before we let you go, Juwan, um, tell us where folks can read your stuff and follow your work. Sure. I will say, of course, as you mentioned on the great, perfect website of Twitter, I am primarily Juwan the writer. I'm also Juwan the curator on Twitter and all other social media that's curator as in C-U-R-A-T-O-R. I recently wrote an article that I self-published on Medium after trying to write it elsewhere, but recently self-published an article talking about season 21 of Law & Order and how that season or how the show exists at the end of that season is completely a failure of both the show and the people it claims to represent. So you can read that on Medium. Dot com. Elsewhere, I am also a contributor to Mediate, which is a you know a, a site covering media, news, and politics. You can see my work there. Um, I'm also an editor for the American Independent, and I do freelance and a lot of work elsewhere. Find me online. Search me. <laughs> That's um, right, <laughs> all over the place. Well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it was great to talk to like a real Law & Order fan and get your perspective on this. So I uh, really do appreciate it. Of course, we've been speaking with Jawan J. Holmes, Brooklyn-born journalist and writer specializing in digital media culture and art criticism. In addition to all those other places, you can certainly follow him on Twitter, while it still exists, at Jawan the Writer. Jawan, thanks again for joining us today on Citations Needed. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to say real quick, thanks to obviously everyone listening, but thanks to the whole Citations Needed podcast crew that made this possible. And I do want to shout out all the Law & Order fans and even some cast members that have um, come out and recognized the harms of the show. And I want to thank you for doing that because it's important. Oh, that's right. The woman who played the assistant DA, she apologized for the show. Yeah. So on SVU, as we know her as Casey Novak, she was a prosecutor on the show for about five, six years. She came out after the John Oliver segment and she acknowledged the harm of the show. And so Diane Neal is the actress's name. She's, and she was known for SVU, but she's also appeared on a lot of other shows that even other propaganda shows, NCIS, um, CSI, right. a litany of shows, even on Suits, which is not propaganda, but another other unrelated show that is good. But yeah, I commend her for coming out and saying that after the John Oliver segment. Um, unfortunately, some of the current cast members in the original Law & Order and Law and Order SVU have not been as forthcoming, but there's others that understand. And oh, Sure. Yeah. I mean, they did, there's a residual check in their mailbox every week. I, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you pay those Law & Order residuals, I'll say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thank you to them they and all the fans that are also standing up and speaking up about it because it's not just us. But thank you guys for having me. Of course. Thank you so much. Well, that will do it for this Citations Needed News Brief. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Of course, you can follow the show on Twitter at CitationsPod, Facebook, Citations Needed, and become a supporter of the show through patreon.com slash citationsneededpodcast. All your support through Patreon is so incredibly appreciated as we are 100% listener-funded. But that will do it. We will be back with more full-length episodes regularly scheduled as they are from time to time of citations needed so stay tuned for that but until then thanks again for listening i am nima shirazi 
I'm Adam Johnson. Citations Needed senior producer is Florence Burrow Adams. Our producer is Julianne Tweeten. Production assistant is Trenda Lightburn. The newsletter is by Marco Cardellano. Transcriptions are by Morgan McCasson. The music is by Granddaddy. Thanks again, everyone. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>